Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Wednesday evening, reflecting into uh, the person and thought of one Pope Francis. Uh, I have Bob Cross joining me. Bob, it is great to have you with me another night. Great to be here, Joe. Thank you. So, Bob, you know, life and thought of Pope Francis. Last week, we spent our whole program focusing in on this great theme of athleticism and faith, uh, because Pope Francis himself did. Uh, And we didn't really get a chance at all to talk about the joy of the gospel. So I thought what we would do this week is uh, re-engage the joy of the gospel, and in so doing, really re-engage many of the themes that we have been talking about, but today we will have the opportunity to put it in the context of secularism as he does. And he has some strong words for us today. There is a lot in paragraph 64, Bob. I don't know if we are going to be able to get out of paragraph 64, maybe paragraph 65, but uh, certainly the aim for tonight is to make sure that we have a clear understanding of not only what secularism is, uh, but also what that looks like in all of its practicality. So this will be our focus here tonight. It's important to make sure that we uh, are not creating this pseudo or false picture of Pope Francis, uh, like unfortunately so many people in the media circles are. All you have to do is to read some of the um, sentences we're going to be reading from Joy of the Gospel to see that this is a man who is in continuity with Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and St. John Paul II, and it really comes through strong in these paragraphs. It really does, and you know, it, any way you can get your hands on this exhortation, I encourage everyone to do so, because everything starts to, to, to become clear about what he says his Wednesday audiences, his appearances, uh, like last week we were talking about, um, you know, him speaking to some youth and others who were gathered to celebrate, you know, sports, and even in that appearance and everything, every, everywhere he goes, it all kind of comes back, back to the thoughts and, and the spirit of this man, and it's, and it's in this document, and uh, that's why I, if anybody wants, even asks me about what I think about Pope Francis, I tell them, find out for yourself. Read the exhortation, Mm -hmm. read the joy of the gospel, because you begin very, very quickly to know what this man or how this man thinks and what drives him. And it would be important to note as you're talking about this, Bob, Yeah, let us take a step back and hit the refresh button. This is an apostolic exhortation. In the language of the church, an exhortation is penned out from a synod, which is a gathering of bishops, priests, and leaders of the church. They're clerical and lay leaders of the Catholic Church. Approximately a year before the joy of the gospel was penned, there was a gathering of these leaders, and they set forth 53 initiatives, initiatives on the new evangelization. It was a synod to promote the new evangelization. So the document that we have been talking about, the joy of the gospel, 
is set within the context of the new evangelization. So what we have been talking about as it relates to these paragraphs over, the, over these last, well, three, four weeks, uh, where we've been really focusing in on the cultural challenges, what Pope Francis is saying is there is a cultural crisis going on, and we need to identify this crisis for what it is so that we might better evangelize the people that are a part of it. And always mindful, as he notes time and time and time again, Baham, that if we are not right, then we are not going to be able to evangelize. You cannot give what you do not have. That being said, he does identify that there is a crisis, culturally speaking. Now, you can well imagine this is why the media, who on one level endorses this crisis, isn't going to be paying attention to these chapters, Bob. Uh, but if you're going to appreciate the man for who he is and the document for what it is, you've got to have that context. You have to. And so this is why, Bob, in paragraph 64, he gets into the meaning of secularization. And, and you can read the first part of this uh, in the first sentence. It, it, it goes right to the heart of what you just described. It reads, the process of seculariza- secularization tends to reduce the faith and the church to the sphere of the private and personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this word, secularization, let's talk about this a little bit, Bob, because it is a word, secular, secularism. It comes from the Latin secularis, secularis, and it is a word that means pertaining to or belonging to a generation or age, a move away from any kind of religious truth towards what is pertinent to contemporary thinking. And it often manifests itself, Bob, in fads and really more over ideologies, okay? Even the word generation, the Greek word for generation, genoa, is 40 years. So we, we know what a fad is, but what we don't often think about is really how a fad defines an age or defines a generation and how fads are byproducts of a particular way of thinking pertinent to bigger ideology. So as it relates to a fad, I'm just not talking about the parachute pants of Michael Jackson. You know, that's not what I'm talking about here. It's so much more. You're really dating yourself here. I know, I know. So it is more about the ideology that governs an age, that governs a generation, that wishes to remove God from the picture, that really does define the process of secularism, that process of moving away from God and towards material things. Anytime you have an emphasis on materialism, you're going to at once have a de-emphasis on spiritual realities. Explain to me, and and is that what what he's saying when he says it reduces the faith and the church to the sphere of the private and personal? What do you mean by private and personal there? Yeah, because ultimately the process of secularization is simply the process of removing God from contemporary thought. The more emphasis you put on this idea of a freedom autonomous from law and truth, you are at once distancing yourself from God in his absolute truth. And when you do that, then you begin to put the pressure on religion itself to be privatized. It doesn't have a place in the open market. This is why we see public prayer being removed from our schools because it infringes itself upon this contemporary thought that, yeah, freedom is not something that is 
bound by law. No, it's autonomous from law. I mean, this is uh, the secular way of thinking. This goes back to the gospel again, Bob. I mean, why does Paul juxtapose Christ with the world? Uh, What does the world mean uh, for Paul? Well, the world in the Greek is schema, uh, agenda. The world has an agenda. And certainly, as Pope Francis makes note time and time again, is that evil exists, Satan exists, and he uses materialism, he uses consumerism, he uses all of these isms that drive the human appetite away from God. So yeah, religion is to be privatized. Religion is to be only that which belongs to uh, the personal life. This is what he intends to mean. And then he goes on and says, furthermore, by completely rejecting the transcendent, it has produced a growing deterioration of ethics, a weakening of the sense of personal and collective sin, and a steady increase in relativism. I know we've talked about relativism Mm -hmm. in the past, we did a couple of weeks ago, and here it comes again. Um, What is he saying here? Yeah, well, relativizing truth, not Bob looking at truth as absolute and one. Truth is whatever we make of it. Now, this is my truth. This is your truth. What happens to truth itself? Remember, Christ did not say, I am a way. I am a truth and a life. Christ said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. And and this is in the imperative sense, absolute and unchanging. And so, yeah, it's interesting, Pope Benedict XVI, in his opening homily after he was installed as Pope, (laughs) says, you know, we live in a dictatorship of relativism. Uh, So by relativism, within that context, he is simply saying that uh, we relativize truth to our own way of thinking without considering the fullness of truth itself. And then in this illogical twist, Bob, what do we do? We impose this relativism. We impose this ideology. We impose this secular ideal. In one hand, they say to us, Christians, how dare you speak in such absolute terms? Don't you understand there's no such thing as as absolute? What they fail to see, though, as we have talked about before, The very critique that there's no such thing as absolute truth is in of itself an absolute statement. And this is what they impose. It becomes this dictatorship of relativism to the extent that there's an absence of dialogue. Because it is in that absence of dialogue that they will never come to see that there is such a thing as one truth. And ultimately, this is what Pope Francis says. You know, and this is why it leads to a loss of sin. You know, if there's no such thing as absolute truth, if there's no such thing as the fullness of truth, then what do you do with the public revelation of Jesus Christ? What do you do with Jesus Christ? I mean, it's to to always remember, Bob, that the name Jesus means what? Yeshua. God saves. Well, God saves us from what? Well, Matthew makes it clear. God saves us from our sin. In fact, in... uh, the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Mary's instructed to name her child Jesus, and the next verse is because he's going to save us from our sin. And uh, yeah, you remove Jesus from the picture, and this is what secularization does, then ultimately you're going to remove why he came, sin. <laughs> 
you remove God and uh, we, our senses are going to be dulled towards truth. This is exactly what he says. Now, you reject truth. You reject the transcendent. And there's going to be a deterioration of understanding right from wrong. Yeah, isn't it isn't it interesting there in the next line um Pope Francis you know he mentions the bishops of the United States of America have rightly pointed out while the church insists on the existence of objective moral norms which are valid for everyone there are those in our culture who portray this teaching as unjust that is as opposed to basic human rights and you know we hear that all the time you know, yep. you really do in today's world that, you know, I mean, it's oppressive to actually, you know, insist that, hey, there are some things that are wrong, that are unjust, that, you know, are go against our, uh, you know, our, our moral compass, so to speak. Yeah. And <laughs> what does he say? We need to provide an education which teaches critical thinking and encourages the development of mature moral values. What he's saying is, let us engage in dialogue that points towards all individuals involved taking ownership of what they are saying so they might move towards a clear understanding of the aforementioned truth, Bob. The same person who is going to say, well, I don't know if I can make a judgment on whether or not this is right or this is wrong, is a parent who has two or three kids who each and every day is constantly telling their child something is right or something is wrong. Why? Because they see that objectively speaking, something is right and something is wrong. Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago as it relates to objective truth and subjective truth. Subjective truth is what is hidden, unseen, and internal. Objective truth is external, revealed, seen. We can make judgments upon what is objective. We can make judgments upon what we can see clearly. And as parents, Bob, you and I are both fathers. We know what that looks like. When our child goes out into the middle of the road and there's a car down the street going 55 miles per hour in our local neighborhood, do we just sit there and say, huh, I don't think that there's really much of a chance that that car is going to hit my kid. No, we see something objectively and we either scream at our kids to get out of the road or we run ourselves to grab up the kids, right? Or even better, I don't want to hurt little Johnny's feelings yes. by going out there and bringing him back out of the street <laughs> because he, he may not like that. He wants to go out in the street for a reason, and I need to respect that. I mean, how often do we hear that? I mean, it sounds a little absurd, but it really isn't when you look around today's yeah, world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really well put, Bob. I mean, because what he's talking about, and I know he gets this, he gets into this... Um, further down, but he talks about this overemphasis we put on uh, the public opinion. It's important to remember <laughs> that the word heresy, Bob, comes from a Greek that literally means choice or opinion. Choice or opinion. And sometimes really? it's, it's, it's quite subtle. Yeah, really. Yeah. So, you know, so it's quite subtle heresy. Some heresies are quite subtle. Uh, we've been talking about this on Tuesday nights, some of the early church heresies. And, and one of the things that strikes me is it's so easy to get caught up in this um, political ideal of, well, we need to have our opinion heard, that we forget there's such a thing called objective truth. That, yeah, we are made to look at a situation and to be able to decipher whether something is a good or an evil, whether something is right or wrong. And you put it well. 
What gets in the way is this sentimentality. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. And yeah, I mean, it seems like an extreme example, but it's really not when you put in the context of the Christian faith. You know, you say, yeah, I don't want to hurt Johnny's feelings, but there's a lot of sin going on and we don't say anything because we're far too concerned that we're going to hurt their feelings. It's interesting. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, where Christ says, do not judge. What does he actually say in those series of verses? He says, do not condemn. In the Greek, it's do not condemn the heart. Do not condemn what is subjective, what you do not see, hidden, unseen, right? What does he then say in verses 3, 4, and 5? Take the plank out of your eye, and it's actually, the image is like this big boulder out of your eye, so that you will be able to judge. When you take the plank out of your eye, when you take the boulder out of your eye, you will be able to judge and judge. So, so verse, chapter 7, verse 5, he's actually saying that we have been entrusted with this deeper sense of right versus wrong. We need to form our conscience, be prudent. Prudence is the pronouncement of our hopefully formed conscience. And out from that, we make the right correction, the right decision. Bob, there was another sentence in 64. I know we talked about before. Where is it? Oh, yes. These have led to a general sense of disorientation. And this is him talking about the steady increase in relativism. These have led to a general sense of disorientation, especially in the periods of adolescence and young adulthood, which are so vulnerable to change. You know, it's frightening, uh, Joe, as we, we talk about this in, in my career, um, broadcasting career, we dealt with sales and we would sell national products and brands, radio time, advertising. And along with that, we would also get the parameters of the buys that would come down from soft drink companies or movie companies in particular. And these buys would have a lot of research behind them and they would target a specific particular demographic. It was 12 to 18 year olds. Mm. Mm. Many of the stations that are one station in particular, several top 40 stations that had a particularly young audience, they, money was poured like you would not believe by the soft drink companies mm-hmm. and by the movie companies to form this, this, this very impressionable age group, 12 to 18 year olds, in such a way that allows them to start building a customer for life. They were already looking to the next generation so that they could sell their particular soft drink to those same 12, 13, 14-year-olds, a soda when they're 24, 25, 26, and beyond. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they were not only looking for you know, their, their brand promotion to that particular junior high or that adolescent or that teen, they're also forming them to become lifelong customers. And that's frightening. Yeah, and they are well aware what they're selling has an addictive quality. So oh, yeah. if, if if I can get you when you're 14, 15, 16, when you, you think about the coffee industry, it is incredible, Bob. You know, Wednesday mornings, uh, at least during school, I would head over to the coffee shop over by Marsh. The Marsh is a junior high here in Chico, California. Uh, they start their days on Wednesdays at 9 o'clock. So uh, I would take my son there and, and get our bread. And, you know, it's 8.15, 8.30. Well, every Wednesday morning, kids by the droves are powering down these 24-ounce, you know, frappuccinos or, you know, all of these dressed-up drinks. And I'm just thinking, holy moly, 
by the time they're 17, 18, they're going to be climbing walls. By the time they're 24, 25, I mean, hook, line, and sink. These coffee shops and the whole coffee industry, and mea culpa, you know, I, I like my caffeine. But my goodness, I, I don't think I was drinking these 24, in some cases, 32-ounce dressed-up coffee drinks uh, before my day. I mean, holy moly. Yeah, so, I mean, can you imagine then, I mean, just take it a step further and think about, you know, the movie industry, mm-hmm. think about the music industry, sure. television, pop culture, video games, and what Pope Francis is talking about here in his exhortation about the deterioration, especially with adolescents and with young people, and, you know, everyone as a whole, for that mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. And just think about the movies. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy Yeah, in terms of what's being produced out there. Yeah, and how we've lost our sense of, Bob, what should be rated R versus what is rated R, what should be rated PG-13 versus what is rated PG-13. There's this fluctuation going on with the rating system uh, that is only a reflection, I think, of what we're talking about as it relates to the moral uh, deterioration, the moral decline. There's an, a great you know, blog or an article on newadvent.org, and it's a movie review of the movie by the name of Chef that's coming mm. out. I, I started reading this movie review and it just tied right into this particular chapter. If I could, um, I, I'll just take a brief moment and sure, read sure. some of what this particular um, critic, you know, who was obviously writing for a Catholic website, uh, has to say about the movie industry. And he, he puts it this way. And again, his name is John Zmerak. Okay. He says, um, the next generation of filmmakers grew up not so much reading as watching movies. And he's talking about those who write and those who sign off on movies being made. And he says, they were originally intelligent movies, movies that that were lessons in literature, and they had a certain code associated with them. And there were movies that were like A Wonderful Life or Miracle at Morgan's Creek, Nothing Sacred and Third Man. The next generation after them grew up not so much reading as watching movies, albeit intelligent movies such as those four. These producers and directors went on to make films like The Godfather, After Hours, E.T., and Star Wars. Films were still very smart, but lacked the moral compass, which was once infused by lessons of literature and enforced by the Hollywood production code. The people grew up on Star Wars and Jaws, but even more on The Six Million Dollar Man and Charlie's Angels, became studio executives at age 23 or so, and approved movies like Die Hard, Fatal Attraction, and Ghost. So we're moving along here generationally sure. as far as yeah. movies. And now the people whose sensibilities were shaped by that kind of movie and by Baywatch and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, plus thousands of hours logged playing EverQuest, are okaying projects <laughs> like The Lone Ranger, Noah, Saw, and A Million Ways to Die in the West. Yeah. So you think about it, the chronology of filmmaking in this in this country, and it just goes on to they're dumbing everything down, they're making everything, you know, just it's perpetuated this ter- deterioration that Pope Francis is drawing out in his exhortation. That's so right. Pop culture. Yep, that's right. Uh, what's the old analogy? If you put a frog into a pot of water before the water starts to boil, it will happily boil to death. If you first boil the water and then you throw the frog into the boiling water, it will quickly jump out. Um, We are the frog that was first put in the water, and the temperature has been put on high, and we are just happily boiling to death, Bob. It's just that, that slow process of being desensitized 
to the nature of truth, that slow process of being made callous to right versus wrong. And you know what's so important as we talk about this, Bob? It's twofold. First, we have to identify that there is the need to evangelize those who are involved in the movie movie industry, those who are involved in the TV industry, those who are involved in the music industry, and all of those who are involved in just the more collective, secular, drive-by media industry. And what we have to understand is that we are called to evangelize them on an individual basis, that they might have, through our cooperation in the grace of God, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, that we need essentially to point them in the right direction. Because what you just read for us is a dangerous truth. And by Pope Francis using that phrase that there is a cultural crisis today, he is saying that we need to identify these dangerous truths and evangelize, go there. Not, you know, in a way where we can't actually engage them in critical thought. He's saying, no, on the contrary, meet them where they're at and engage them. Certainly endearing them or endearing yourself to them in a relationship, because ultimately, as we've talked about before, it's that trust that is built up out of that relationship that will then in turn open them up to that dialogue. But he is making the point clear. We need to be able to evangelize. In St. John Paul II's last work entitled Rapid Development, he emphasized this. Go to the cultural meeting center. We've talked about it before, Bob. We need to go where Jesus went when he was here on earth. He ate with the sinners, and we're all sinners. Uh, And in light of this, we are made to see that we need to draw from the grace of Jesus Christ. But in drawing from the grace of Jesus Christ, he has summoned us to evangelize. And that is where we need to go. And I think that that's what this movie critic was really trying to to do. The essence of the article was that this was a good movie. This movie, Chef, it's a must-see father-son movie Mm. that is a far cry from everything that's being produced or being produced now and has been produced. And the way that the movie industry has deteriorated. Yeah. And so I should mention that he highly recommends a movie. And yeah. it's something that I think I'm going to try to <laughs> yeah, see with awesome. my sons this weekend. So uh, it, it, he's calling out the movie industry. And he's giving a, a very valid, sensible explanation as to why movie makers over the years have made some mm-hmm. of the stuff that's coming out throughout yeah. the years till today. And I have to think that there's there's a good share of the american public actually people around the world who are starting to understand that you know there's a lot of stuff that comes out of hollywood and it comes out of in the in movies today that are not very good yeah i mean i think they're starting to see it for what it really is you see a lot more wholesome uh even religious based movies getting a lot more publicity and airplay that's right and, and attention these yep. days which is very it, it's exciting in some respects yeah and, and i think hollywood is turning the corner there bob you're absolutely right because why culture itself is an outgrowth of what we are doing behind closed doors you cannot separate that person comes before society society does not come before person uh, societies are made by individuals so I think very thought-provoking program, Bob, and we will certainly have the opportunity in upcoming weeks to develop this even further as Pope Francis uh, does so in the document. All right, let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.